Well, I am glad that you're here. And uh, I, am, I am excited about where we are in God's Word. Uh, we are in week two of a series called Urgent. We dove in last week, and um, we're looking at this, this, this idea of living lives of urgency, living urgent with obedience to Jesus, living urgent with the call that He has put on our life to take His name to the world and the gospel to the world because the gospel is an urgent message. There is an urgency for us to endure till the end. When is the end? When Jesus comes back. That's what we talked about last week. The message of the gospel is urgent because Jesus is coming back. Do you believe that? If you believe Jesus is coming back, then the gospel message is an urgent message. It matters. And it, it, it should put a sense of urgency in us and change how we live so that we share that message and see as many people as we can come to faith in Jesus. Because he is coming again. And between now and the day when he comes again, we have this window of grace. We have this window of grace to both hear and receive the gospel, but also this window of grace to take this gospel message and Share it, because when he comes again, I want you to hear me, he isn't coming like he did the first time. First time he came as a baby, meek and mild, you know, what are the Christmas songs we sing? Infant holy, infant lowly. Is that true? Yeah, but that's not what's going to happen the second time. When Jesus comes again, he is coming as the righteous judge, and according to God's word, he is coming to judge the living and the dead and to separate the righteous from the wicked. And that day puts a sense. If I believe that's real, I got a sense of urgency in my heart to make sure people know the glory and the beauty and the treasure that is Jesus. So um, this morning, we're looking at another one of these realities that gives us a sense of urgency, that gives us a sense of, of purpose and of drive toward why we share the gospel and why we live on mission for Jesus. And that urgency is the reality of hell. The reality of hell. Now, aren't you glad you came this morning, uh, right? If you're asking yourself, is this rascal about to preach on hell on Family Dedication Sunday? Yeah, we're going to go ahead and do that. Uh, I know, it, 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 it might seem a little awkward, but here's the reality. It's because we don't talk about it enough. It's because we, we don't talk about it enough. Talk about it enough. And uh, the truth is, this is a subject that we can get a little bit uncomfortable with culturally, in our culture, this is a reality most people just reject completely, right? In our culture, this is hard for people to believe. But listen, even among believers, if we're honest, if we're honest, it's a topic that makes us uncomfortable. It's something we don't like to think about, and it's something really that doesn't sit well with us emotionally. It's a reality of it. There was a survey done uh, a few years ago uh, for, to believers and non-believers. So you had Christians and non-Christians, and they were all asked the same questions. And they were all questions about the afterlife, right? So you got this group of believers, group of non-believers, they're all getting the same questions. And they were at, one of the questions they were asked was, do you believe in heaven? 75% of those believers and non-believers said, yes, I believe in heaven. Then they were asked, do you believe in hell? Only 40% said they believed in hell. Here's what's, what ought to cause some alarm in the hearts of God's people. That tells me some of the Christians weren't able to affirm the reality of hell. 
Only 40% said they believed in, a re, in an actual hell. But listen to this. Less than half of 1% believed it was possible for them to go to hell. Less than half of 1% believed it was possible. Here's the point. Very few people believe in hell and even fewer believe they're going. Which makes, again, the reality of hell and the message of the gospel urgent in our lives. This is not something that is easy to believe. It's a hard teaching. But I want to, let's just acknowledge something. If you're a believer in the room, then um, we can acknowledge this. Christians believe hard things. Can we just acknowledge that? We believe hard things. What do I mean? We believe in the triune God. We believe in a God who is distinct as one, yet he is three in one, Father and Son and Holy Spirit. We believe in creation, ex nihilo, which means out of nothing. We believe that God spoke creation into existence. There was nothing, then he spoke, then there was creation. We believe some hard things. We believe in a book that is perfect, has endured generation, will endure to the end, and is without error. We believe in this divine book. We, we believe in a God who made a river part, a deep one, to become dry land. We believe in a God who made water come out of a rock. We believe in a God who made little Debbie Krispy Kreme stuff fall straight out of heaven and become manna on the ground. Don't mess with my theology. As far as I'm concerned, what came down was little Debbie. I promise you. So, we believe in a God who did that, right? We believe in a God who made a donkey talk. No jokes about preachers. We believe in a God who made an axe head float. We believe in a God who took three Hebrew men who were walking in obedience, set them in the middle of a fiery furnace that had just killed some people, and they didn't even come out smelling like smoke. We believe in a God who took his prophet Daniel and set him in the middle of a den of hungry lions, didn't get a scratch on him. We believe in a God who took a man named Jonah, allowed him to be tossed off a ship into the ocean, swallowed by a whale, and took the weirdest Uber in history to Nineveh, where he was spit out so that he could preach the gospel. We believe hard things. We believe in a God-man who touched a barrel of water, and it became good wine. We believe in a God-man who took a few fish and a few loaves of bread and said some words and fed 5,000 people. I can't feed two 15-year-old boys with two fish and a few loaves of bread. Can't pull it off. But we believe in the God-man who did that. I believe in the God-man who took mud, spit in it, made a paste, put it on the eyes of a blind man, and his eyes were opened. I believe in the same God-man who, without even being in the presence of a sick child, look at the Father who said, would you heal? And Jesus said, do you believe? He said, I believe, but help my unbelief. She's healed. I believe in that God-man. I believe that this God-man was perfect. He was perfect. I believe that he died a physical death of crucifixion. I don't believe that he was simply unconscious. I don't believe that he passed out. I don't believe that he took a nap. I believe that his body was physically dead and it stayed dead for three days. And I believe that after that, that same physical body came fully 
alive. Why talk about those things? Because we believe hard things, and yet still the reality of hell can be difficult for us. C.S. Lewis said this about hell. He said, there is no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than this if it lay in my power. But it has the full support of Scripture and especially of our Lord's own words. And that's why we're going to deal with it this morning and talk about it because the Bible declares it and Jesus taught it. Did you know that in the Bible, hell is mentioned more times than heaven? Interesting fact. It's there. Did you know that in the Bible, no single person talked about hell more than Jesus himself? And did you know that the number of times Jesus spoke about hell is more than the entire Old Testament combined? Why? Because Jesus knew this reality. And he knew the urgency of his people knowing this reality. And he knew that we needed to get it because we can't neglect it. Because, listen, if we neglect the reality of hell, we neglect the gospel. What do you mean? I mean, you cannot embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ having been rescued unless you embrace the reality that you were rescued from something. Are you with me? You cannot embrace the gospel and neglect the reality of hell. So we deal with this reality. So with that in mind, I want you to grab your Bible and go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Small little letter on the back half of the New Testament, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 5. Paul is writing a letter to the church at Thessalonica. And right in the first chapter, within the first few verses, he dives into the deep end of the second coming of Christ and the judgment that is coming with that. Let's pick it up in verse 5. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5. Paul says, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might when He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because of our testimony to you. Well, because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, with this in mind, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of His calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. There are three questions that I want us to deal with this morning, to answer this morning. My prayer is that as we navigate through these questions and answer them, that we will be informed, yes, but I want us to be more than informed. I want, us to, I want us to get to that place where being informed is met with a new sense of 
of confidence and a new measure of faith, and we move from informed to empowered. That's where I want us to get this morning. I want us to be empowered to live as believers in Jesus without fear of heaven. I want us, excuse me, fear of hell. I want us to be empowered to not be afraid of conversations about hell. And I want us to be empowered to recognize it as a reality that motivates us to share the gospel. And so there's three questions I want us to answer about hell. I'm going to give you all three right now, and then we'll work through them. The first one is this. Why does hell exist? I want us to answer that question. The second one is this. Uh, what is hell like? That section's not going to be a pick-me-up, by the way. <laughs> I just want you to know that. Why does hell exist? What is hell like? And how do we escape? That's the three questions I want us to navigate through, and then I've got a, some, some ways I want us to apply that at, at the end. So let's dive in. Why does hell exist? I know that many people struggle with why a loving God would ever create a place like hell. And if it's okay for us to be honest, and I, I hope that it is because I'm going to be, I've struggled with that. It's a, it, it's a real thing. The, the reality of what hell is measured against the full, perfect love of God. Can anybody else just own that there's been times in your walk, your walk of faith in Jesus where you've gone, oh, that's, that takes some work for me to get there. It's kind of hard, right? It's one of the primary arguments people use against God for not believing in God or for not believing in hell. Tell me if these questions sound familiar to you. How could a loving God ever send anyone to hell? If God is love, then how could he send the people he says he loves to a place like hell? Has anyone ever heard those questions before? If you haven't, you will. If you haven't, you may be because you hadn't been in enough gospel conversations. Get into one. That's what they're going to say. <laughs> right? And that question has been asked over the years, and believers have been so ill-equipped to answer it that it becomes a conversation stopper. It becomes something that shuts down a conversation because believers aren't equipped to answer that question. But here's the truth of that question. It only deals with a portion of God's character. It only deals with a portion of his nature. What do I mean? Yes, God is loving. They want to know how, did God, how would a God of love send someone to hell? But it only deals with that portion of his character. Now, is God loving? Yes, 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 and 8, let us love one another because love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. And if you do not love, you do not know God. Why? Because God is, God is loving. Is God merciful? Yes. His word says he delights in showing mercy. Is God uh, uh, forgiving? Yes. Confess your sins, I'm faithful and just, and I will forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Is he kind? Yes. Is he full of grace? Yes. But in equal measure to his love and his mercy and his grace, in equal measure, he is also holy and he is also just and he is also morally perfect. Which means what? That in the perfect love of God, and the perfect holiness of God, you get the perfect justice of God. That's where those things come together. And because he is infinite in holiness, 
to what, to what I prayed, Isaiah 6, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Because he is infinite in holiness and perfect in his morality and in his purity, because that is true, sin is an infinite offense against him. And it must be dealt with justly. So, hell is how God justly deals with sin. That's how he does it. So why does hell exist? Because it is where God righteously deals with sin. And I want to give you two things that we see in Scripture about that. First, hell exists for God to deal righteously with our enemy. For God to deal righteously with our enemy. Who is our enemy? It is Satan. Right? He is the face of all evil. He is behind every deception, every addiction, every fear, every abuse, and every shame. In God's word, we see Satan described as the destroyer, the deceiver, your adversary, the dragon, the dark angel, the enemy, the tempter, the wicked one, the thief, the prince of darkness, and the father of lies. Listen to me. This is the one who wants to ruin you relationally, financially, emotionally, and yes, spiritually. He wants to destroy your family and rob your joy and cripple your faith. And hell is where God will righteously deal with him once and for all. Okay, I want, let's set aside some things that we see in culture <laughs> And just call out some life. Hell is not the place where Satan is in charge. That's not what it is. There's not some eternal kegger going on down there in hell and everybody's doing the electric slide for eternity. That ain't what it is. All right? Anybody know the electric slide? You ever done that? Did I just date myself? It's a good day. If I, if I didn't want my job, I'd show you how to do it. Ah, uh, anyway. <laughs> so... <laughs> Hell is not the place. We've got this image painted for us of this little red devil with a pitchfork and a heart-shaped point on the end of his tail who's the boss and just pokes and prods at people who were bad. Hell is not the place where the devil is in charge. Hell is the place where Satan is in prison. That's what it is. It's where he is in prison. Jesus taught this in Matthew chapter 25. He's teaching about the final judgment and how when he comes in his glory, he's going to separate the sheep from the goats. He's going to separate the righteous from the unrighteous. And to the righteous, he's going to say, come, you who are blessed, inherit the kingdom prepared for you. But listen to what he's going to say to those who are wicked, to those who are unrighteous. Verse 41 of Matthew 25, he says this, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into eternal fire prepared for who? For the devil and his angels. Hell has been prepared first for Satan and his angels. It is where God will ultimately deal with him. Here's the second reason hell exists. For God to deal righteously with those who have rejected Christ. This is hard. For God to deal righteously with those who have rejected Christ. Verse 8 of of uh, 2 Thessalonians 1 that we just read says Christ is going to come inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Hell is for those 
who have rejected the good news of Jesus, who have chosen to live their lives apart from God in rebellion to God, that is where they will spend eternity. Hell is the perfect justice of God being executed on the infinite offense of sin. It it helps me to think about it this way. Heaven is where those who have said, I want God, I need Christ, I want his presence in my life, I want to live a life that honors him. Hell, uh, heaven is where those who have said, I want God, get exactly what they want and they get him forever. You get God forever. Hell is where those who have said, I do not want God. I do not want him in my life. Hell is where they get what they want forever. But it isn't like what they think. Hell is for God to deal righteously with those who have rejected Christ and where they are without God forever. So that's why hell exists, because God is going to deal righteously with our enemy, and he is going to deal righteously with sin, and he is going to deal righteously with those who have rejected the gospel. So let's get to the fun part of the sermon. What is hell like? Look at, look at verse 9 of 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul said, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. Away from the presence of the Lord... And from the glory of his might. There are many elements that make up hell, that make it what it is. The first thing, though, that I want us to notice is there is one element that is common between heaven and hell, and only one way that they are the same, and that is this they are eternal. That's it. I want you to hear me for a moment. There is no such thing as purgatory, there is no place you're going to go in the in between. When your life ends here, the decisions you made will determine the destination after that. There is no hoping it goes well after you died. And when you die, the eternity is either heaven or it is hell, and it is forever. Hell is not temporary. It is not a timeout. It is not being grounded for those who are bad. It is eternal. It will never end. And that is where the similarities between heaven and hell come to an end. Because hell is the antithesis of heaven. When we consider heaven, what what do we think about? What comes to mind? Perfect happiness, right? Perfect joy and peace and eternal bliss and the full unveiled uh, uh, nearness of God's presence and seeing him. And the language Paul uses here in 2 Thessalonians to describe hell is meant to paint the exact opposite reality of that. Paul says that there will be eternal destruction. Did you know that that phrase is only used one time in the entire Bible? And it's right here in 2 Thessalonians. One time do we get the words eternal destruction associated with hell. And the promise of eternal destruction for those who do not know God, who reject the gospel, is meant to stand in stark contrast to the promise of eternal life for those who do. What does John 3.16 say? That God loved the world, right? Right? 
He gave us Jesus. Why? So that whoever would believe in him, trust that name, trust the gospel, believe the gospel, would not perish, would not suffer eternal destruction, but would have what? Everlasting life. Paul is saying hell is the exact opposite of that. It is eternal destruction. Now we said that Jesus spoke more about hell than anyone. Jesus doesn't just reference hell. He describes it in great detail. And I want us to look at some of the ways that Jesus himself, the words of Christ, talks about hell. And I'll just bullet point these for you as we go. Luke chapter 16, verse 23, he describes it as a place of eternal torment. Mark chapter 9, verse 43, he describes it as a place of unquenchable fire. A few verses later, Mark 9, verse 48, he describes it as a place where the worm never dies. Matthew 13, 42 is a place where people will weep and gnash their teeth in anguish and regret. In Luke 16, 19 through 31, he talks about it as a place from which there is no return. And in Matthew 25, 30, it's a place of outer darkness. And in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, he compares it to a place called Gehenna. He calls it Gehenna. Gehenna was uh, a trash heap on outside the walls of Jerusalem. And what made Gehenna so terrible was it was obviously the smell. It was always filled with maggot and rotting things. But here's the other thing. It was perpetually burning. Gehenna never stopped burning. It was the trash pile that burned constantly. And so he describes it that way. There is no denying that Jesus knew and warned against the reality of hell. But in all that language, what matters most for us to grasp, and if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, here's what matters most that you grasp. Hell is the place where you lose the presence and the joy and the blessing of God forever. It is where you lose the favor and the face of God forever. It is where the soul itself begins to decompose and you fall into utter and unending despair. It is where you lose God and where your eyes are open to what you have truly lost. That is what hell is like. Which makes the next question that we have to answer the most important, which is this. How do we escape? If hell exists and it exists to justly deal with sin and I'm a sinner and now I know what hell is like, how do I escape? And there is only one answer. There is only one and it is the gospel. It is the work of Jesus Christ. That's it. You don't escape hell with anything else. You don't work out your way out of hell. You don't do enough good and hope the balance falls in your favor. When you breathe your last on this earth, the only thing that will determine your eternal destination is the decision you made about what to do with Jesus. That's it. But Jesus has done all that is necessary for you to escape hell and get the glory of heaven. Why do we need that? Because of Adam and the first sin, we are all born in sin. You were born a sinner. All these sweet babies that we dedicated this morning, guess what? Every one of them's a sinner. Even the cutest ones, sinners. Good ones, they're gonna be good ones too. You know what I mean? My babies were precious 
and really good sinners. Romans 3.23 says what? All of us have sinned and we fall short of the glory of God. Every single one of us. And then Romans 6.23 says because that's true, the wages of that sin, what it earns for us is death. Not just a physical death, but the eternal destruction death that Paul talks about. Listen to me. We're going to go ahead and put this misconception aside. Hell is not the destination for bad people. It is the destination for all people unless you meet the rescuer. It is where we are all headed apart from Christ. So what did Jesus do? He did Romans 5.8. But God demonstrated his love for us. In that while we were still sinners, while I was running headlong down the wide path to hell, in that moment, Christ died for me. So that the righteous judgment of God was not diminished, it was not disregarded, but rather it was fully executed on Christ himself. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2 says that Jesus became the propitiation, the payment for our sins. Why did he do that? Why did he love me? I know me. I'm not worth it. Why did he do that? Because of 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous, him for the unrighteous, me. Why? That he might bring us to God, that he might give us God and give God to us. That's why he did it. That he might give us himself and give us heaven and rescue us from hell. The only way humanity escapes the reality of hell is Jesus Christ. He said, I am the way. And no one gets to heaven or to the Father unless they come through the work that I am doing on the cross. That needs to liberate somebody in this room from trying to work your way out of hell. You ain't going to do it. Somebody in this room needs to know that what you know about the Bible doesn't matter. And how you grew up in church doesn't matter. And even if you prayed a prayer when you were five, if your heart wasn't transformed by the gospel, it doesn't matter. All that matters is have I received the gospel? Have I put my faith in the finished work of Jesus? Have I trusted that he's paid the penalty for my sin? And have I been changed because of it? If the answer to that question is not yes, it's got to be yes. And it can be yes. Because Jesus is the only Way It is Christ, and it is Christ alone, which means what? The question is not, how could a loving God send people to hell? The question is, how could a just God ever love me and save me? That's the right question. How could he ever love me? He knows me. He sees me. He sees the part none of you see. You see the outside. That's where man looks. What did the psalmist say? God looks somewhere else, down in there on the heart. He sees that, and yet, seeing it, knowing it, 
He still went to the cross. Before I could, I didn't even have the ability to know that I needed the cross and he went. I didn't have the ability to ask him to go. He went. I didn't have it within me to even be able to acknowledge that what I was doing wasn't working. And still, somehow, he went to the cross for me. Which makes the cross the most beautiful and glorious thing we have. Matt, you're talking about that, that instrument of torture? That thing that was horrible, that they used to murder? You, that? I'm saying that apart from that, we're still on our way to hell, which makes that, that anybody else would call ugly, I look at it and call it glorious and beautiful. It is the most beautiful thing I have in my life. So, how does this reality of hell, what does it do? How does it change our perspective? How should this have an effect on us? And the answer is this. It has to wake us up. It has to wake us up. We cannot simultaneously live with the reality of hell and not live with a desire to see people rescued from it. Are you with me? If there is no desire in your life to see people rescued from hell and saved through Christ, then I would ask you, do you really even believe there's a chance they're going to go? Because if you do, there's an urgency for us to move into. So how does it wake us up? It awakens us to the reality of sin. That's what it does. Jesus taught on hell because it awakens us to the severity and the danger of living our lives for ourselves and rejecting God. Has anyone ever, anyone in here ever uh, smelled smelling salt? Anybody ever had the pleasure of being a little woozy and smelling some uh, smelling salt? Well, how, what do they use that for? I don't know if they still do. There was a day but before we knew what a concussion was, where if you got your bell rung and your eyes were studying the back of your head, they would snap that smelling salt open and wave it under your nose, and that ammonia fragrance and that sulfuric pungent fragrance would hit your senses, and it would be so startling that it would wake you up. When Jesus teaches on hell, it is meant to be smelling salt to our souls. Believer, you got to hear me say this. We don't have time to be sleepy Christians. Some of you need to snap open the smelling salt of the reality of hell and take a deep breath and let it startle you back to the reality that most people at the end of this life are going to lose. Say, how do you know that? Because Jesus said, wide is the gate. And easy is the way that leads to destruction. And many will find that. But narrow is the gate. And hard is the way that leads to life. And few there are that find it. 
until we embrace the reality that most of the people around us will come to the end of this life and lose this game and spend eternity in hell. We will not have the urgency we need. It's got to awaken us to our sin. It's got to awaken us to the urgency of the call that God has given us. And here's the thing, other thing it does, and then we're done. It awakens us to the glory and the beauty of the gospel and of heaven. Why do we love light? Because of the reality of darkness. Why do we pursue joy? Because of the reality of despair. Why do we love laughing and dancing and celebrating? Because of the reality of weeping and mourning and heartache. You cannot rightly treasure what you've been rescued to until you've truly seen what you've been rescued from. Hell is real and it is forever. So my question for you this morning first is, Have you been rescued from hell? I know, I know that in this room right now there is someone who has not made Jesus the Lord of your life. I know that and you know that because as I'm saying it, the Holy Spirit's going, that's you, that's you. You said some words when you were five, but not a thing in your life reflects that you've ever met Jesus. He's talking to you right now. You grew up going to church with your mom and dad, but not one time did you put your faith in Christ and has he changed you. You've never been made new. You're the same that you've always been and all you're doing is trying to do a little harder and sin a little less. He's talking to you. If that is you here in just a moment, as soon as Philip sings the first word, I need you to get out of that seat and come down here. And take one of our ministers by the hand and just go, that's me. And, and this, is, this is not a gamble I'm willing to take anymore. I need Jesus to be the Lord of my life. God, I have prayed for you that you would do that today. And then for some of us, it's just time to wake up. It is time to start living with gospel urgency in our life. Your circle intersects with people every day, every day, who will in this life lose this game and go to hell. Every day. And there has to be a sense of urgency in us to see them meet the rescuer who's rescued us. So that's the call today. Come and receive the rescuer and wake up to this reality so that you can live with urgency. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word and thank you for the power of it. I pray that over these next moments, God, as we worship, you would simply move and have your way. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, let's stand and let's worship.